Welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 51, Pope Gelasius. Does he have something? Yeah, we've mentioned him quite a couple times already in this series. Uh, so that's good. I was going to ask you if you recognized his name. So, brava. I'm not sure if he, like, wrote some epitaphs or if he wrote like histories or what but i remember he exists yeah he is a busy pope man and i guess we should jump right into him to find out exactly why first off gelasius is the third and the last of our african popes oh yeah that's that's a thing that's sad to me yeah i mean there's not a lot of cultural variation in the popes as we are going to see time and time again but Hey, at least we get a break, and this is not a man from Rome. The Liber Pontificalis tells us that he was born in Africa, and that his father was an African man called Valerius. Further speculation posits that he was probably born in Kabylia in northern Africa, modern-day Algeria, which would make him of Berber descent, like our previous African pope, Miltiades. I love Berber. Well, good, because we have to talk a little bit about this. This is going to kick off a discussion right off the bat, because for some reason, more than the other two popes that we've talked about that have come from Africa, there is more speculation that Gelasius might have been a black African, with several websites going so far as to title him the Black Saint. Spoiler alert, he is a saint. For whatever reason, more than the other popes, that come from Africa, people are like, this dude was black. However, in practicality, this is pretty unlikely. Uh, there are no contemporary descriptions of him or his skin color, and all later depictions show him as a white man. There's also not any commentary on how direct that Berber descent is, and even that doesn't actually accurately tell us anything about what color his skin might have been, so... You know, all of the people who are claiming that Gelasius was the Black Pope have no real compelling evidence, and unless we wanted to go into a whole thing about race and the Empire, we wouldn't even begin to have, like, a basic conversation about the implications of racial characteristics and identity. That's not what this show is about, so we're just going to touch on it and say this is a thing that comes up, and it is probably most definitely not true fair yeah but there is also debate about whether or not he was from africa at all where else would he be from well in a letter from gelasius to the emperor anastasius he refers to himself as roman natus or roman born and this has been taken by some less than scrupulous sources to mean that he wasn't from africa at all and was just another standard Roman popey boy. But he could have, like, lived there. Well, we also think, that is that is a thing, and he will, in fact, live in Rome at some point. But realistically, what this self-reference is actually telling us is that Gelasius was born in Africa sometime before 435, when the Vandals established their kingdom in North Africa. Okay, so he identifies as Romekin? Yeah, yeah. If he had been born before this point, he was born in the Roman province of Africa Proconsularis, and therefore was 
Romkin was still Roman-born because he would have been a Roman citizen still. So all of this racial nitpickiness is for nothing, really, because Julius was likely no different than the other two popes we've covered from this region. But at least this little one phrase of him referring to himself as Roman Natus gives us a little bit of insight about his potential age, because we know he, he might have had to have been born before 435. What is it now? He will become Pope in 492, so... Okay, so he's like 60 years old. Is that how math works? That is roughly how <laughs> math works. <laughs> Anyways... Regardless of where he was born or what he may or may not have looked like, Gelasius did end up in the Roman clergy at some point and lived in Rome, like you guessed, and had a stellar reputation. Like, he was known as a priest who was dedicated to prayer, penance, and study. He is a super keener. He was often in the company of ascetic monks and spent the majority of his time giving to the poor. So he is a good egg and a great example of what the church wanted itself to be at this point. The other thing about Gelasius was that he was a prolific writer with a unique and compelling style. We're going to talk about his large body of religious writings as the episode goes on, but this is something that he was also doing just as a regular cleric and earning quite a reputation for being a phenomenal writer. So by the time of Pope Felix III, Gelasius is employed as the Pope's secretary and was responsible for writing many of the ecclesiastical documents and decrees that were issued during Felix's struggle with the Acacian Schism. Is this because he's good with words or because his handwriting is real pretty? Both, let's say. Generally more like the former, but let's say the latter too, because, you know, you need a good steady hand for that Latin script when there's no spaces and no punctuation. Some historians actually think that he wrote most of Felix's personal letters as well, so there's that. And one historian, Hugo Koch, has gone so far as to claim that he might have even written for Simplicius for a little bit. So... He was in a very powerful position and had a powerful religious message to put out in a very elegant, compelling, and lovely penmanship sort of way. That's just what you need. Exactly. And we're going to see quite a lot of that. Now, before we get to his election, there is one thing that I want to make a brief mention of to keep up with what's happening in the secular context as it will become more important to the popes in upcoming episodes than it will for this one. So, during Simplicius's episode, we dealt with the fall of Rome in terms of the Roman Empire and saw the foundation of the Kingdom of Italy under Odoacer. And things had gone on pretty okay and pretty par for the course under Odoacer. Considering barbarians. Considering barbarians. Aryan barbarians. Wow, that would be a great band name. Aryan Barbarians. No, it, it would just be Barbarians again, but with like Aryan. Capital. <laughs> Capital Aryan. Barbarians. Uh, I don't know, I like the flow of Aryan Barbarian. Like, <laughs> it just seems like some sort of ska band from like the late 1990s. 97. Yes, specifically. <laughs> But by 489, King Odoacer was embroiled in a civil war with Theoderic, king of the Ostrogoths. 
Now, Theoderic had followed a pretty similar trajectory as Odoracer in terms of imperial relations. He was a barbarian leader, he had become a patrician and a magister militum under Emperor Zeno, and had even at one point been appointed consul, which is the highest non-imperial role you could hold in the empire. But Theoderic and his Ostrogothic forces wanted more, and rather than end up in a situation where he started to threaten the borders of the Eastern Empire, Zeno decided to put Theoderic to work. As Odoacer's rule in the West had solidified and carried on with gusto, rather than collapsing and falling to pieces, Zeno, the emperor, becomes quite threatened by Odoacer as a rival, and fears that Odoacer was shoring up his allies against any moves that Zeno might make. I love the visual of shoring up allies. <laughs> Describe. Well, like when you shore something up, you sort of put sandbags behind it. <laughs> and it's just like a pile of people. A sandbag pile of allies. That's yes. per- uh, yeah, that's exactly what Odoacer is doing in Italy. Zeno is very afraid. Zeno is so afraid, but he also has this guy underneath him who suddenly seems to be doing very similar things to what Odoacer did before he broke off and took over Italy. So why not solve two potential threats with one move? So Zeno encourages Theoderic to take his forces to Italy to take out Odoacer and have a kingdom for himself, because wouldn't that just be so convenient? And Theoderic agrees, and so in 489, Theoderic leads his forces into Italy and defeats Odoacer in battle at Isonzo River on August 28th. But he was actually, like, a capable human. He was a capable human, yes. I expected that to go really poorly. You should go fight that barbarian. Oh, sure. That man's on the dumb juice. But it's not quite over yet, because he didn't kill Odoacer here. This forces Odoacer to withdraw from the capital to Verona, but he was followed and defeated again, and then forced to withdraw again to Ravenna. And Theoderic moved into Mediolanum, and the majority of Odoacer's army surrendered. And then Odoacer is killed personally by Theoderic in an ambush framed as a treaty meeting. Oh, so it was like, let's talk about politics. Haha, I'm stabbing you. Yeah, surprise, you're dead. So yeah, so when, when they're having this meeting, Theoderic, has, they're all coming together and they're all going to have dinner together. And uh, Theoderic basically just takes out his sword and whacks him with it. And Odoacer goes, where is God? And apparently Theoderic cried out, this is what you did to my friends. <laughs> the Lannisters send their regards. Yeah. And then when Odoacer is definitely dead, Theoderic is said to have stood over him and said, there certainly wasn't a bone in this wretched fellow. So that sounds like ye old teabagging. Pretty much. Yeah. Mm hmm. This is preserved in uh, John of Antioch, so, you know, very, very flowery and dramatic. But there you go. That's the account of what happened. And then all of Odoacer's family and the majority of his troops are also killed. So Theoderic assumes the throne as the king of Italy now. So this is all happening during Gelasius's papacy. And this isn't going to have a huge impact on our papal narrative today, but... Oh gosh, will it ever have consequences for future popes? So, that's Theoderic for you, and he is now the king over the area 
that Rome is a part of, since it's no longer part of the Empire. So, right in the middle of all of this new overhaul happening in the civil secular world of Italy, Gelasius was elected to be the next pope on March 1st of 492. And one of the first things that Gelasius turns his attention to, unsurprisingly, is the Acacian Schism that broke out over our last two popes with the Henoticon and the eventual excommunication of Acacius of Constantinople. Yeah, I've listened to all that twice through now, and it still is nonsense. 35 years, Fry. 35 years. We're going to be talking about it for a while. Again, let's summarize it up and try to make it make sense. Acacius, the actual one that this started with, the Bishop of Constantinople, has died. And Pope Felix, our last pope, was not able to reconcile with Constantinople under the next bishop, Fravitas, because he continued to hold communion with the Monophysite Peter Mongus in Alexandria. And then he had died, and Euphemius, the new bishop, taking over from Fravitas, who was an orthodox leader and very, very open to reconciliation, had still refused to remove Acacius's or Fravitas's name from the diptychs. Ah, yes, the diptychs. The diptychs. So Felix was not about to make that compromise, and then Felix had died. So now Gelasius has inherited the conflict, and he approaches it by taking up Felix's insistence that if there's going to be reconciliation and Constantinople is going to be returned to communion, both Acacius's name and Fravitas's name have to be removed from the diptychs. Unfortunately, despite Euphemius being an orthodox bishop and the efforts that he's making in Constantinople to promote orthodoxy, he's still absolutely unwilling to budge to remove his predecessors from their place of honor. And so all the other orthodox efforts that he's actually making in Constantinople are rejected by Gelasius because he needs to fight to affirm the primacy of the Pope, refusing to compromise, and this schism is going to last throughout the entirety of his papacy. So, 35 years, we're a long ways off from the solution. And this is a moment in time where we really start to see the beliefs and the values of the Eastern Church and the Western Church kind of on a divergence course that is going to be very hard to reconcile with one another. Even with an Orthodox bishop in the East, the East is so confronted by the presence of monophysitism that for the most part, it's just easier to practice toleration and embrace monophysitism as an ally against the other extreme, which is Nestorianism. In the West, though, this is totally unacceptable, and both Nestorianism and Monophysitism have to be condemned and have to be entirely stamped out. So this is where we're going to see them kind of start to part quite hard. And Gelasius continues to reaffirm the fundamental message of his papacy being, no, 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 we need to stamp out both sides of these because only... Only, only the Chalcedonian definition is correct by publishing a theological treatise called De Duabus in Christo Naturis, which is on the dual nature of Christ, making clear hypostatic union, Council of Chalcedon, not Nestorianism, not Monophysitism. So the schism goes on. And on and on. And, and on and on and on. 
and on 35 more times. But remember that this isn't just an issue with the Church of Constantinople. Remember, the Emperor Zeno had been close with Acacius, and so even when Acacius had been excommunicated from the Church, the Emperor had had enough influence to prevent Acacius from actually being removed from his position. And that imperial favor very much continued on with Fravitas and Euphemius once Acacius had died. And then Zeno died, and was succeeded in 491 by Emperor Anastasius. It's me, Anastasius! <laughs> and Anastasius was a myophysite, which is sort of that middle bridge work ground between monophysite and orthodox that was based kind of on the writings of Cyril. And he very much favored the idea of this Hanaticon. But he was a new emperor, and he doesn't have the schismatic religious baggage of Zeno. And restoring imperial relations was still extremely important for the Church of the West, particularly if they wanted to remain relevant outside of the empire. So Gelasius takes this moment because he wants to make contact with the emperor but also to set things off on the right foot. You know, if a firm groundwork could be established to frame their interaction, maybe this emperor could be influenced to move in the right direction for the church. So in 494, Gelasius wrote to Anastasius to address the ongoing conflict of church and state relations. And this letter is known as the Duo Sunt, which translates to two powers or two swords, depending on what source you look at. And this letter is of massive importance. It basically lays down the model that all Western political and ecclesiastical structure will follow with the church and state for the next thousand years. That's a long time. That's all the way until Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Correct. And they're going to base all of their political dynamic between church and state roughly on this letter. And we're going to read it here and then get into the impact of what it says. So this is J.H. Robinson's translation from Readings in European History. There are two powers, August Emperor, by which this world is chiefly ruled, namely the sacred authority of the priests and the royal power. Of these... That of the priests is the more weighty, since they have to render an account for even the kings of men in the divine judgment. You are also aware, dear son, that when you are permitted honorably to rule over humankind, yet in things divine you bow your head humbly before the leaders of the clergy and await from their hands the means of salvation. In the reception and proper disposition of the heavenly mysteries, you recognize that you should be subordinate rather than superior to the religious order, and that in these matters you depend on their judgment rather than wish to force them to follow your will. If the ministers of religion, recognizing the supremacy granted you from heaven in matters affecting the public order, obey your laws, lest otherwise they might obstruct the course of secular affairs by irrelevant considerations, with what readiness should you not yield to them obedience to whom is assigned the dispensing of the sacred mysteries of religion? Accordingly, just as there is no slight danger in the case of the priests if they refrain from speaking when the service of the divinity requires, so there is no little risk for those who disdain, which God forbid when they should obey. 
And if it is fitting that the hearts of the faithful should submit to all priests in general who properly administer divine affairs, how much the more obedience is due the bishop of that see, which the Most High ordained to be above all others, and which is consequently dutifully honored by the devotion of the whole church. So this is a big one. This is a huge standard for papal authority. This letter establishes the distinction between the two essential powers, which are the sacred authority of priests, called actoritas, and the power of the royal authority, called potestas. And Gelasius makes it very clear that these two powers are both divine, yet entirely separate and function independently because they don't operate in the same realm at all. So, separation of church and state. Absolutely. He goes on to explain that of that separation of church and state, the priestly spiritual authority carried a more significant weight, considering that priests would be held accountable for the souls of men, even kings, when it came to the Last Judgment. And because of this, the emperor or any other secular ruler, though these powers be separate, must obey the bishops and bow down to the will of the Pope in any religious matter, because he was the greatest manifestation of actoritas on earth. So that's what the infallibility. This is, this is the start of infallibility, but infallibility as its own concept will come a little bit later. But this is basically saying, look, just as the clergy is expected to participate and follow the secular law governed by the emperor, the emperor is expected to do the same in matters of spirituality, deferring to figures that had the proper authority. And again, I, I just need to reiterate, in the grand scheme of things, this is massive. This is the outline that will be interwoven into all political and religious interaction between popes and kings and emperors for a literal millennium until the sledgehammer of Unum Sanctum comes along. Yeah, this is definitely some serious points. Yes. Unfortunately for Gelasius, the immediate results of the letter had a lot less weight for its legacy. Emperor Anastasius basically maintained the Eastern view that the church and state existed for authorities to, like, co-mingle and cooperate, so he's not actually willing to get on board with the whole separate and independent power thing, and he actually turns away from the church at this point and seems to embrace monophysitism in the East. They love that monophysitism. Monophys. Can't say it. Monophysitism. I have to break it down myself every time. Monophysitism. <laughs> that is a tongue twister drinking game you can play with your friends. Take a shot every time you can't say monophysitism. Man, you'll be wasted. Alcohol poisoning forever. That's worse than, like, Thunderstruck. What, is that a drinking game? Yeah, you're supposed to take a shot every time they say thunder or thunderstruck. Oh my god, that sounds like death as well. Good. Who is doing this? People who don't like their livers. Or their brain cells? Yes. So, anyways, he just decides monophysitism instead. I'm not gonna get on board with this whole duosant thing. And I'm going to just go this way, and I'm going to start persecuting certain bishops that don't want to sign the Henoticon or repudiate Chalcedon. So he's coming out like Oprah with those persecutions. 
you get a persecution and you get a persecution. Yep, totally. When we deal with the duo scent, we'll have to consider both its immediate failure, but its very, very long and successful impact as a legacy. So keep that in mind when we get to scoring. But let's go back to Rome and talk about the Lupercalia. The Lubrication what? <laughs> the Lupercalia. It's a. Uh, it sounds pretty out of place for Christian Rome. So it sounds like a wolf. What is happening? Oh, you're you're getting there. It's a bit of a weird one. So, in short, the Lupercalia or Dies Februatus was an annual pagan festival held in the middle of February. I love February. Yep, you would. You would. You are gonna love this idea of the Lupercalia. By the way, so this festival pagan festival centered around driving out evil spirits and purifying the city of rome to prepare for health and fertility this is also where we get the word february by the way for from februare which is like to purify so this is also the festival where young men ran down the streets naked with goat hide whips to flog people with sounds like mardi gras yeah yeah it, it's it's a good time uh, if you've watched plebs, they do a lubricalia and they try to turn it into basically a Valentine's Day. Oh, I haven't gotten that far in plebs. Uh, it's great. But, I mean, obviously this isn't exactly what the festival looked like by this point in time because, you know, Christianity. But we do know that despite the banning of pagan festivals and rituals back in 391, the lubricalia in some form had persisted. Up until this time, right up to Pope Gelasius. Nobody can stop Mardi Gras. Yeah, and it's it's all about this whole superstitions about the health of the city, like protecting it from pestilence and demons. So, you know, but that's exactly what it is. It's a superstitious occasion, rife with scandals and naked men, with overtures of demon worship, or at least... At least paganism, you know, depending on where you want to fall on that line. I thought they were they were saying demons go away, which is not really worship. Seems the opposite of worship, unless those demons love being negged. Wouldn't that fit right up their alley? It would a little. Neg a demon. Unfortunately, this is not something that Pope Gelasius wants to see continue in Rome. He's not the first pope to complain or, or warn about the festival. I mean, of course. Who do you think wrote to Anthemius, the emperor, about its problems? It's probably just, like, really beautiful script that's like, these naked men. But who who before Gelasius might have complained about people having fun? Hilarious. Pope Hilarious. Pope Hilarious wrote a letter about how Lupercalia was dangerous. He's just here to poop on every party. He is pooping on the parties. And fortunately for, you know, the people of Rome who were having fun with it, that didn't go anywhere. But Gelasius is actually going to get this handled and put an end to the festival by declaring that no baptized Christian should partake in any pagan ritual. Why are you pooping on the party? But what's really interesting about Gelasius' attempt to suppress the Lupercalia is that in doing so, he writes a letter to the Roman senator Andromachus detailing the aspects of the festival that he found the most issue with. And these details, historians haven't been able to locate anywhere else. Which means that if he had not written this letter in an attempt to end the celebrations, 
The details of said celebrations might have become shrouded in antiquity. This is how we know about how part of the Lupercalia was celebrated, was because the Pope was like, bad, bad, don't do that. So Also, I feel like perhaps it's blown out of proportion at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, definitely. So there is a wonderful article that does a full analysis of the Lupercalia in the 5th century through Gelasius's letter by William M. Green, and I'm going to post a link to that in the show notes because it's great. You know, of course, because he's trying to to shut down this Mardi Gras party, his work to bring the Lupercalia to an end was met with protests, particularly from senators who felt that the festival was critical to the overall health of the city. And to them, Gelasius taunted and said, If you assert that this rite has salutary force, celebrate it yourselves in the ancestral fashion, Run nude yourselves that you may properly carry out the mockery. Take your dicks out. <laughs> exactly. He's Pope's ass. He's like, what, you're you're afraid? Like, get get whip it out. Let's go. If you run down the street, I'll whip you with the goat whip. <laughs> That's one hard, like, bluff. Yep, yep. And uh they 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 went with it. They they not with the whipping out of the dicks, but with the um Putting an end to the festival. They're like, no, I don't want to know. But this is pretty telling, aside from this very, very strong Pope's ass bluff. The complete removal of the festival was initiating general anxiety in people in Rome. You know, the Lupercalia had been a pressure valve, like Mardi Gras, for concerns about things like health and purity and fertility and more, and so... To just remove it would unsettle the citizens of the city who were already experiencing, you know, tumult. They are no longer part of the empire, and now their king is dead, and there's this new guy who came in with an army. Oh no, maybe we need a pressure valve. They're having a feel, yeah, okay. Lots and lots of feels. So Gelasius has them covered, and he replaces the significance on purification associated with this event into Candlemas which is the Feast of the Purification of Mary, celebrated 40 days after Christmas, which is February 2nd. So he's like, oh, you're worried about purification? Here's the Virgin Mary. We'll give you that holiday. <laughs> on Groundhog Day? Yep, on Groundhog Day. And, and to be clear, he did not replace the festival of the Lupercalia with a new one that was being created. The Candlemas was already a thing that happened. He just shifted the focus of purification to a more religiously appropriate event. What about Mary? Yeah, exactly. So that was the thing that happened under Gelasius. The Lupercalia, it is over. But it's still heresy time, so... <laughs> because Gelasius is confronted with a problem in Rome. A problem that seems to keep popping up for the emperors and popes in the city, despite their best efforts to get it dealt with. Do you have guesses? Manny and friends. It's Manny and friends. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that once again, there was quite a large population of secret Manichaeans who were publicly presenting themselves as Christians as a cover in public while they met in secret and disseminated Manichaean literature throughout the city. They're having raves again. They're having raves again. But this time, they, like, come out of the raves and they, like, shower and put on a good suit. And they're like, I'm an upstanding Christian businessman. And then they hand you a flyer. 
There's no glitter like on them. They banned glitter from the event. They have learned that they need to just like keep it clean. So you know that Jonathan Colton song about the NPR announcer who goes to the rave. Yep, it's that. Dance, Satirius Johnson. Dance. Yes, that one. Uh, <laughs> so, Gelasius comes up with a plan to root out these fake Catholics and expose them for the many friends that they are. Would have gotten away with it too if it hadn't been for you meddling Pope. <laughs> yep. So, Gelasius passes a decree that required that the Eucharist must be taken, quote, under both kinds. So that means in order to receive the Eucharist, both bread and wine had to be taken. Whereas at this point in history and at the standard public services, mostly it was just bread. So what does this have to do with the Manichaeans? I hear you. Yeah, I have no idea. I've never had wine at church, honestly. Really? Yeah. I thought that it was pretty standard now that they just they just do the both. But. No, they don't. They don't have it out all the time. It's like special occasions, and like you can only have it if you're like an adultier adult, and something you don't have to have it. Hmm. Well, I learned something today. <laughs> I thought for sure this was a normal thing. No, no, no. Then Dad will 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 take all of the uh, the backwash and drink it. Oh, Deacon Death! No, the holiest of backwashes. Well, I guess yeah. You can't pour it out. It's well, there was like a special place to pour out. There, there's like a special sink. I've there's a holy waste disposal system for the blood of Christ. Gotta go straight into the ground, so it's like a pipe to the ground. What? Okay, this is. <laughs> I need an interview with Deacon Dad about some of this weird stuff. The pipe to the ground and the holy backwash. Yeah, I know. Well, I hope we all learned something today. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, okay, so. Just like today, I guess, at the time in these standard public services in Rome, it was just bread. And Manichaean philosophy is very ascetic, and they believed that human beings who were focused on indulgences of the flesh, like material possessions, or sex, or rich foods, or meat, or wine, would have their souls stuck in the human existence. Oh, so they can't have wine. Yeah, so they strictly abstain from these type of things. So when they're at a church service to pass as a Christian and they refuse to drink from the chalice of the Eucharist, they're exposed as a Manichaean and expelled from the city. Haven't they ever considered fake drinking it? Well, apparently not because this works so, so well and a large number of Manichaeans are exposed and Manichaeanism as a whole gets suppressed within the city. So, like, just use the three-year-old mentality where you're like, yeah, I'm totally eating my dinner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, they haven't figured that out yet. And so basically, for the time being, this gets rid of them all, or at least, you know, enough anyone who didn't want a fake drink, and they get rid of it and suppress enough of them that they just go back to the normal method of taking the Eucharist with just bread. So it was all a ploy to boot Manny, and when Manny was out... They just brought back the normal way of doing it. Wine's expensive. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Holy crap, is it ever. I I don't drink it, so when I see it in the shelves, I'm just like, holy Jesus, who's spending this for rotting grapes? But someone is. Yeah. The rotting grapes get more expensive the more rotten they are. True. 
So Gelasius also made some administrative changes and established some new traditions in the church that are worthy of a little bit of conversation. So in his 15th epistle, Gelasius added more ordinations. We have the original ordinations that occurred in December, and then we had Pope Simplicius adding ordinations in February. And now Gelasius is adding ordinations on the Ember Days, which are a Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday in the same week that come four times a year with the seasons. So the four seasons where the Ember Days are are around Advent in December, around Lent at the end of February, between Pentecost and Trinity Sunday in June, and the liturgical third week of December. This is very vague and a brief accounting because, oh my god, trying to figure out what Ember Days were and exactly how they correspond to one another was a nightmare. And I said, Fry, ask Deacon Dad when the heck the Ember Days are. And you were like, why is that a thing? And why is this difficult? And so, yeah. But anyways... Gelasius is adding clergy, and this is why in the Liber Pontificalis entry on him, it states, quote, During his papacy, the clergy waxed greater. So, he's also the first pope we've seen in a long time that actually deals with church finances by instituting new models for the use of church income. This income, by the way, included both the income from donations to the church and the profit of church property or estate. So it's pretty all-encompassing, and we haven't really seen this yet. So Gelasius' formula broke down the use of church funds into four categories, which I'll list in basically descending order of importance, as well as who gets the most money. So first and foremost was charity for the poor, then the maintenance of churches, then to support the bishops, and then to support the minor clergy. And for the most part, this seems to have made good sense and is very in line with his values. You know, we already established that he personally was very, very invested in charity and working with the poor. So now he's bringing the whole church in line with that initiative. And by establishing this as a financial framework, he's ensuring that his legacy of charity would continue as an actual institution of the church even long after he was gone. So that's pretty cool. And that's in Epistle 16 that we see his breakdown of, you know, super financial reform. Very, very exciting stuff. Also, I saw several websites that indicated that Gelasius was the first pope to be referred to as the Vicar of Christ, but I couldn't actually find a historically or academically reliable source that pointed to any actual evidence for this phrase being used at the time. So we are going to tenuously debunk this as one of those often repeated but never verified things. There is one historian, Andreas Thiel, uh, who is at the forefront of, you know, collecting and analyzing most of Gelasius's writings, that points out that he is the first pope to reserve the term sumes pontifex specifically for the Bishop of Rome as a reflection of the primacy of Rome being both an honor and a right of jurisdiction, but that is as close as we get. We also need to talk very, very briefly about a synod that Gelasius held in 494. This synod published an epistle, 42, that cataloged the canonical books of the Bible and a list of works considered apocrypha. This is why, for so long, Gelasius was the one who was credited with determining the official canon of the Bible and why the canon list from the 
Synod of Rome, 382, is sometimes called the Gelasian Decree. But we know now that that had actually come from Damasus, and this publication of a synod from Gelasius in 494 is just a reaffirmation for what Damasus had already set out. So for hundreds of years, Gelasius got credit for that thing that Damasus did that made him our top scorer because he was both scandally and did a lot for the papacy. He would not have had that 69 points otherwise. <laughs> but Gelasius died on November 19th of 496 of natural causes, being at least, you know, 60 years old plus if he was born before the whole Vandal Kingdom thing. The Catholic Encyclopedia comments that because of his immense dedication to charity, Gelasius personally died penniless and empty-handed because he consistently gave everything that came his way away to other people. Oh, that's a choice. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice thing. He was buried at St. Peter's Basilica and remains there today as far as we know, but modern archaeologists don't actually know where in the church he was buried, and they haven't identified his grave yet, so hopefully he's still there, because we're going to have so many popes in the next little bit that are like, tomb was destroyed in the renovations, and that's it. Now it's time to rate this man. Papatum and Phallium. There's a lot to talk about here. In the bad category, we have to say, he didn't put an end to the occasion schism, but no one will for a long time. In the good, he did a lot to assert papal primacy, both over bishops, but also in the face of the emperor. Although we see the duo sunt not succeeding with Emperor Anastasius immediately, it was going to be massive in the legacy of political thought and church power. Like, this is almost a 10 right here just for writing this document. And, and I've put this in my notes that I'm, I'm going to give him a five just for the duo sunt, and then also some points in secular. I impact him for that one. So he's already got, he's already got a five for me. Okay. But there's more. He's not just about papal supremacy. He also held Constantinople's authority at bay against the other patriarchs, and he established formulas for where church money would be spent. He is one of the most prolific writer popes with a huge amount of writing surviving till now. Like, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, the collection and letters of Gelasius by Bronwyn Neal and Paul Allen, we have 42 whole letters from Gelasius, six ecclesiastical treatises, and 49 fragments currently archived in the Vatican, mostly due to the work of Dionysus Exegus, who is responsible for the first collection of papal letters. In this writing, he wrote many hymns and liturgical collections, composed a mass book, and the Liber Pontificalis says he also made prefaces to the sacraments and prayers in careful languages and many epistles in polished language regarding the faith. However, there are also a bunch of works that have been attributed to him that are definitely not authored by him, known as the Pseudo-Gelasian works. And we're not going to go into them, but the two largest are the Decretum Gelasianum and the Gelasian Sacramentary. So, lots and lots of writing by him. And finally, to consider on this category, he is hugely famous in his own time and after. And I'm going to give you a quote from Dionysius Exegus, who wrote Canon Law, who said, How great the merit of Pope Gelasius is before God! We who have not seen him in body easily perceive through you his disciples who were formed by his instruction 
and adorn the priesthood with your holy life so that his works appear in a way to shine in your manifest good conduct. For he, as we have learned from you and others, was a man of such good will that with God's consent he took the highest position in the church unto the salvation of many, assuming to serve rather than dominate in joining the merit of learning to innocent of life. His spirit was full of light, his life exemplary, his authority revered. It's a lot to consider. What do you want to give him? I'm leaning more towards an eight. Okay. If you're going to give, you know, I'm thinking that too, because I'm giving him a five for duo sunt. I'm going to give him a couple for the whole church money thing and a couple for one or two for the writing. So I'm going to give him an eight as well. So he's going to get a 16 for Papatum and Valium. It's pretty good. It's the best since Leo. Fructus prohibitum. Not a word. No. No, not a thing. Seculari impactum. He got rid of the Lupercalia, but he also contributed to the historical understanding of Lupercalia, like details that might have otherwise been lost to history due to no one else recording this information. Um, and of course, the Duosunt. This changes church-state relations for a thousand years, and secular consequences are huge. Some people even argue that, again, it's the model for separation of church and state, even though Gelasius would have hated that idea. So he's definitely having a secular impact. I'm going to give him a 10 for secular impact. Regardless of what happened to him when he was doing it, he's definitely impacted quite a lot. So much. So he gets a 20 in this category. And this is a really, really hard category to get a 20 in. Only two other popes have done so. So that's that's pretty good. Good job, Gelasius. Fossium Sanctus. So remember when they talk about him potentially being black? None of these are, are black, are they? A Jafif! <laughs> Here's a Jafif of a not-black man. Nobody on the main feed knows our hatred of Jafifs. <laughs> it's a Jafif. I don't know, I kind of love them just because it pulls such a reaction out of you. We're going to have to dock him a point for a Jafif. <laughs> oh, no, don't dock him a point. I mean, he is definitely somewhat distinctive looking. The expression on his face is something. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is, but it is something. Yeah. It's perplexed. He does not like that party. It, he does not. Well, I mean, that's the face he would have made if the senators took him up on it and started running naked through the streets. He would have just been like, hmm, did not see that coming. Yeah. 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 So I don't know. I like it. I don't have a good reason for it. I just kind of like it. He looks like he just rolled out of bed. It could be that too. I don't know. It's very clear though. Like it's got, he doesn't have a weird face. He has a weird bunny poof, but <laughs> he's not a weird looking man in the way that some of our other ones have been. No, but his beard is all like, I just rolled out of bed, and his hair is all, I just rolled out of bed. He's not trying real hard here. No, no, he's just keeping it free and easy. That being said, his beard is cropped real short, and I appreciate that. It's still going kind of wackadoo. It's a little wackadoo. It looks like he slept on the one side, for sure. But, you know, it's not, it's not bushy, so... I don't know. It's worth a good couple of points. I'm gonna give him a six. I was gonna give him, like, a four. Okay. 
So that'll give him a 2.5 in this category. We have a couple more to look at, though, real quick. They're just the bad artists, though. And um, it, it, same expression. If the senator started running down the street naked, that's the face he would make at them. Oh, I sent you a double Jafif. And another Jafif. What is going on? Too many Jafif. Yeah, it's exactly the same face. Yeah. So they're clearly copying off one another. And that's a thing that's happening. He kind of looks like George Clooney. You think so? If George Clooney was an unkempt individual. <laughs> I suppose. Yes, if you squint. The nose shape. Yeah, mm-hmm. You're right. You're right. And the mouth shape. And that's sort of like vaguely disapproving look. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Always vaguely disapproving. Yep. It's just like if George Clooney rolled out of bed <laughs> and it wasn't perfectly coiffed. <laughs> Yeah, okay. So he's the Clooney Pope. And clearly neither of us find him attractive because we're not rating him highly on the sexy points, so. Wasn't somebody really into George Clooney? They're going to be mad at us. <laughs> Someone on Twitter. Well, yeah, we, we've had a go at George Clooney before, haven't we? Ah, oh, yeah. Well, we're at that point where we're repeating our patterns. We've done 50 Popes. We've done 50 Popes. We still don't find George Clooney attractive. Yeah, true. Very true. Tempest Pontificus. March 1st, 492, to November 19th, 496, which was four and a half years, and a score of 1.125. He got a lot done in that time. It's pretty good. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! He is a saint, as we mentioned before, but not a black saint, so that's not a thing. His feast day is November 21st, which is not his death date, but the date he was interned on. And he is not a patron saint of something, so I feel like we need to make him one. It's gotta be, like, homemaker bounce lettering bullet journals. Penmanship? No, because that's... It's gotta be pretty penmanship. So, like, what did you even say? I Bubble... Bounce letters... Bounce letters. You gotta Google it. You know what it is once the second you see it. I'm gonna look this up. Bounce letters. Can we just call him the patron saint of Boojos? Boojos, yeah. Yeah, Boojos. That's ba- what? That's just cursive, is it not? Uh, no, it's cursive, but wibbly-wobbly. <laughs> Wibbly cursive, yeah, okay. So I'm gonna write here, patron saint of bullet journals, Boojos, and Wibbly cursive. Because of you, Fry. This is what you've done. <laughs> that brings us to his total score, which is he's in the 40s club. He got a 40.625. Nice. Well done, Jalazius. My goodness. We have not had someone in the 40s club um, ever. He's our first 40s, yeah. Uh, we We have a couple 50s and we have a 60, but... He is our first in the 40s club. He is. He's going to be the one. I don't know. Do we want him to be the one to instigate the party? Because he's just going to bring Mary and not the naked dudes. I tried to find a bounce lettering version of Lordy Lordy Look Who's 40, but I have failed. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, well, this is something I... Why is that called bounce lettering? That is just because it, wibbly cursive. Because it goes up and down. It's... Uh, bouncy yeah i don't know 
Yeah, okay, so I found a, like, infographic on how the hell they figured this out. Mm. An infographic on bounce lettering? Yeah, I will send it to you because this is a thing that I am looking at now, and now I'm gonna put it in your face. Normal bouncing. Make it upside down. What? (laughs) But there you go. I don't know. It's become the papyrus of handwriting. This podcast is a journey. (laughs) You come here for popes and you get all sorts of weird stuff. There's a lot of toenail sniffers we're finding. (laughs) There you go. The best tweet I got all day. I don't know if you saw I'm going to read it to you. Because it was absolutely phenomenon. Where is it? Phenomenon. (laughs) Phenomenal. (laughs) Okay. It says, forgive me, father. I must confess that I sniff my toenail clippings. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast is a journey. And on that journey, I have a final question for you, which is, do you think he is papally enough and possessy enough and worthy of a papal bull? Because I do. You do? Okay, let's try to convince me, because I'm kind of on the fence. I'm a little bit like, ah, he did a lot of nice stuff, and then also, not that exciting. You're just mad because he took away the naked men. But, okay, this duo son, how many popes have set a thousand-year precedent? Every single one that has set some sort of precedent like that, we have given a papal bull to. So I will say, on that account... There's that. Fine. He is... There's a jumping oh, spider <laughs> in my dice bag, and I don't want to get a dice out. <laughs> wow. Okay, so that was... I was just ramping up for that, so that was easy, and thanks, jumping spider. Kill it with fire? And congratulations, Delasius. <laughs> Why is it in my dice bag? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Why is it in your dice bag? Why have you let it stay there? That's what I'm I really concerned about. I just discovered about. it, and I didn't... I don't like it. Well... His name is probably Arachnathan. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, there you go. This this is something you're gonna have to sort out. And and, and you'll be like, Jalazius, help me! And he'll be like, you almost didn't give me a papal bull. And he'll, he'll whap you with goat hide whips, so... He'll write a strongly worded letter about it. But it will be beautiful. The spider is just Jalazius, the ghost of Jalazius. I know exactly how to make Fry not roll a dice. <laughs> Put a spider in it. We know he's a saint because he is interceding. <laughs> <laughs> With that, we have a very special thank you to make. And that is to every single person who has made it this far and has listened to our show because as of the date of recording, just tonight, we hit 100,000 downloads. That's so many. It's so many, and it's mind-blowing. And people kept saying, oh, you're going to hit it by the end of the year. We're like, you're crazy. And then someone said, Ryan, this is you, said, oh, you're going to hit it by summer. I'm going to say middle of July. And why did you have to be right? <laughs> He's just like, ha <laughs> I was right. But yeah, honestly... Thank you guys so much for listening. This is kind of mind-blowing that people are still enjoying us crazily rant about pout people. And toenails. And Ted toenails and bounce lettering and how a spider is the ghost of Pope Gelasius. (laughs) Do you ever wonder what our conversations are like off mic? They're weird. This is what happens, yeah. So on that note, thank you, thank you so much for listening. You guys are amazing. 
Thank you, Rex Factor, Totalis Rankium, everyone else who has recommended us, followed us, shared our episodes, everything. You guys all rock, and we love you. And now we could say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.